Tonight on The Readout. When he says he wants to get out of NATO, I think it's a very real threat. And it will have dramatically negative implications for the United States, not just in the North Atlantic, but worldwide. Oh, Putin must be absolutely thrilled when NATO is strengthening. Uh, and along comes Donald Trump, uh, there to snatch a defeat from the jaws of victory. Trump's unhinged NATO threat. He's threatening to allow Putin to do whatever he wants to our allies as the U.S. stands by and does nothing, while seemingly promised, promising to appease Putin on the issue of Ukraine. Also, just a short time ago, Trump formally asked the Supreme Court to put a hold on last week's ruling, finding that he does not have presidential immunity from criminal prosecution as he meets with his sympathetic Florida judge in his stolen classified documents case. And just like the deep state planned it, Taylor Swift's boyfriend and a few of his friends win the Super Bowl as Donald Trump tries to take credit for Swift's wildly successful music career. But we begin tonight with the utterly dangerous words of an old man that could trigger World War III. Given the breathless coverage of Robert Hurd's report on not finding crimes to prosecute him for... You would think I was talking about President Joe Biden, but I'm not. I'm talking about Donald Trump. Though given the media's focus these days, I would understand the confusion. So here's the thing. It is the media's responsibility to cover both men with the same dogmatic fervor. But thus far, more ink has been spilled and more hours have been spent dissecting Joe Biden's age and mental fitness than time spent discussing the age and mental fitness of Donald Trump. Case in point. Popular information tabulated the coverage of Trump's cognitive issues versus coverage of the Her report. And guess what got little attention? Trump. One network even asked if Biden's age, and I'll remind you, he's just three years older than Trump, is a bigger problem than Trump's indictments for stealing state secrets, lying to the feds about it, and, oh, inciting an insurrection. I guess creating a false equivalency between age and fascism is easier than talking about the latest incoherent fever dreams implanted in the mind of a septuagenarian retiree by his white nationalist aide, Stephen Miller, or maybe his ex-TV doppelganger and fellow Putin fan, Tucker Carlson. So in case you missed it, here's a sampling of Trump's weekend ramblings. Rich people are given... $7,000 subsidies. The danger from within is far greater, in my opinion, from the, than the danger on the outside. The fascists, the communists, the serious socialists. I hear that they like Obama better. They should like Obama better. You know why? Because he didn't ask for anything. We have to win in November, or we're not going to have Pennsylvania. They'll change the name. They're going to change the name of Pennsylvania. We can be energy independent. And we can even be energy dominant. And yes, quickly says that President Trump. Why, why would they change the name of Pennsylvania, man? Why would they do that? Who to what? Despite this man's clear mental deterioration, that right there is not the most terrifying aspect of what he said this weekend. No, no. What comes next is what should make all of you stop and think real hard about the prospect of this man setting foot in the Oval Office ever again. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay, you're delinquent, 
He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. Okay, did you hear that? That was Donald Trump telling his most fervent cult followers that like a below average mob boss, he could invite Vladimir Putin to invade a European country if that country didn't pay up siding with Russia over our treaty-bound NATO allies. Let's set aside the fact that he probably lied about the story. You know, he always says, sir, when he's making up a story. Let's set aside the fact that Europe actually does pay for its defense. And let's zero in on what is truly deranged and dangerous about what he said, which is his complete betrayal of our allies. The reason that it matters to us is because when we need help, one day when I don't know, Putin decides to retake Alaska, our allies might think twice about helping us. The comment was so dangerous that Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal compared Trump to UK Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, who is best known for his policy of appeasement of Nazi Germany, as he allowed Hitler to take territory in Czechoslovakia in a failed effort to avoid a second world war. Allow me to make this crystal clear to everyone watching. What Trump did was invite a third world war in Europe by cheering on more aggression by Russia. In his latest column, Tom Nichols, staff writer for The Atlantic and a former professor of national security, asks why Donald Trump gets a pass for all of the deranged things he promotes. He writes, we should concentrate on the more terrifying problem. The leader of one of America's two major political parties has just signaled to the Kremlin that if elected, he would not only refuse to defend Europe, but he would gladly support Vladimir Putin during World War Three and even encourage him to do as he pleases to America's allies. Naturally, because the Republican Party has been fully consumed by the MAGA movement and completely abandoned any vestige of their old ideology. Trump's comments were defended, dismissed, and legitimized by none other than serial flip-flopper Marco Rubio, senator in name only, from Florida. And I mean, he was talking about something, a story that he talked about happened in the past. He doesn't talk like a traditional politician. And uh, we've already been through this now. You'd think people had figured it out by now. I have zero concern. Oh, but he does talk like a, a traditional common fascist. But that, okay, that was just one of the many dangerous ideas that Trump promoted during just the past 72 hours. On Friday, he told a room full of gun lovers that he would roll back any gun safety measures Biden has taken while in office. This was after he reminded them that while he was in office, he proudly did nothing about gun violence. He also plans to round up 11 million migrants and force them into detention camps on U.S. soil, let federal officers shoot migrants and allow police and even the military to shoot protesters on American streets, grant every police officer full immunity to kill at will, gut to the EPA and let oil companies drill anywhere they want, teach patriotic education in public schools, Mao Zedong style, ban abortion nationwide, terminate the Constitution and start a war with Mexico because he wants to betray yet another ally. And those are just a few examples from a very long list of disturbing policy proposals Trump plans to enforce on day one. You know, the day he said he would be a dictator. Joining me now is William Taylor, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and vice president for Russia and Europe for the United States Institute of Peace. And Tom Nichols, the aforementioned staff writer 
for the Atlantic. And Tom, I am going to start with you because I feel that we've reached the point where the media must diverge from this plan of equalizing Biden being an old man, which he can't do anything about because time is time, and Donald Trump being thoroughly deranged. But I will allow you to talk. You know, it's one thing to cover both candidates in a political race. It's another to cover a candidate from a a normal political party and uh, a presumptive nominee, um, because he's not the nominee yet, but he's on his way, um, who is literally saying things that, if anyone else said them, would be taken as evidence of severe emotional disorder of some kind. Uh, And that, I think, is, you know, you can't just simply say, well, we're going to cover one candidate and not the other. Um, but the fact that Trump says these things, it, it tells you and that they're not just uh, covered as widely as they would be if someone else said them, suggests that Trump has just gotten us used to it. He's numbed us to it. He has fire hosed us to it to accept as Senator Rubio shamefully just said, well, you know, it's just the way he talks. He doesn't talk like a normal politician. The problem is that he's aiming all of this. Uh, Trump is aiming all of this at a domestic audience because he's terrified of not being elected because then he faces justice in multiple venues. But when he talks, the rest of the world is listening. They're taking notes. They're, they are absolutely uh, um taking this as an indication of what he would do when he's in office. And so what he's done is not only reckless and irresponsible, it's incredibly dangerous. And to stay with you for just a moment, Tom, I mean, Marco Rubio, by the way, who used to call Donald Trump dangerous when he was running against him in 2016. And he still, I believe, believes that he's just saying whatever at this point, like the rest of the cowards right in the party. The, The way that people get away with saying Trump's not so bad is they're like, well, he already served. He was already president and he didn't do X, Y or Z. But can you just speak to the further degradation of the dignity and spines of Republicans? Because I can't think of any who would stop him if he decided to pull out of NATO this time. They're more cowardly than they were before. They're more cowed and they're more focused because they're like, when he gets in, we can get rid of Medicare. We can privatize Medicare, Medicaid and Social Security. So we don't care what he does. Can you name two of them who'd stop him if he said he was getting out of NATO? Because I can't. No. And it's utterly fallacious to say, well, because he didn't do this the first time around, he won't do it the second time around. Um, There were a lot of reasons he didn't do these things the first time around, in part um, because he didn't know how to and the people Hmm. around him didn't know how to. um, And because there still were responsible people around him who were simply not going to go along with these kinds of um, harebrained schemes. Um, this time around, there won't be anybody to stop him. And as we, as you point out, as we just saw, um, what Republican politicians, what elected Republican politicians want to do is keep their jobs and stay in Washington, because the only people they fear as much as Donald Trump are their own constituents. They don't want to go home. They don't want to be around the people that elected them. And that means they'll do anything to stay in Washington. If that means um, agreeing with Donald Trump when he threatens to destabilize the, the, the peace and security of the entire planet, well, you know, so be it. That That's how you get to stay in Washington, I guess. Correct. Uh, they think that they'll survive it. They'll figure they'll be OK. They've got money. Ambassador Taylor, I'm going to read to you a little bit of the Wall Street Journal. This is an op-ed in the Rupert Murdoch-owned Wall Street Journal. And here's a bit of it. Mr. Trump now says he'll end the war in Ukraine in 24 hours, even before he's inaugurated. The only way to do that 
is to deny Ukraine more weapons and tell President Volodymyr Zelensky to give Mr. Putin what he wants. The word for that isn't peace. It's appeasement. What Putin told Tucker Carlson for 72 minutes of, you know, not letting Tucker say anything was he wants all of it, all of Ukraine, because it belongs to Russia. So that's what Trump would do, right? Can you just explain why turning your back on NATO might be a bit dangerous and giving Putin all of Ukraine would be? So, Joy, you're exactly right. Uh, what Putin said to Tucker Carlson and others, I mean, he's written this, he's said this before, is that Ukraine's not a real country, so he can take it. Ukraine, as far as Putin's concerns, what he said was, Ukraine is really just part of Russia. So he can go ahead and take it. Now, why has he not done that? Because the Ukrainians have resisted. And how have the Ukrainians resisted? With the support from NATO, with support for the United States um, and other NATO nations. They've provided the Ukrainians the ability to stop Putin in, in his attempt to take over their country. The Ukrainians have not asked for any soldiers from us. We have no soldiers on the ground to help them. What we have is strong support from NATO nations to provide the weapons to Ukraine. And that is an important component of U.S. security, European security, and our own well-being. Can you explain, because a lot, and I hear this a lot, actually, just in the in these streets, people say, so what? So what? That's not our problem. We should be spending our money domestically. We've got problems here. Why should we care if Russia takes Ukraine? The answer is, if Russia takes Ukraine, then Russia is face-to-face with our soldiers, with American soldiers, in the NATO nations that are on the border with Ukraine. That's true already to some degree in the Baltic nations. It's now true with Finland. Finland is on the border. But if if Russia takes Ukraine, then their next step um, could well be into a NATO member. That means our soldiers are at risk. That means we are implicated. We will come to the defense. There is no doubt, notwithstanding uh, the the issue that the president said before, we will be there. We will support our soldiers. That's why we care that Ukraine stop the Russians now. Because um, for all of those of you who are watching, that's World War Three. If they then attack a NATO country and our troops are killed, you just saw what happened when three of our troops were killed in the Middle East. If you think the Iraq war was terrible, Wait till there's another war in Europe. Those of you who do not want to see your family members deployed to another world war. Let me play what uh, Donald Trump thinks about soldiers, troops. This was Donald Trump talking about one particular deployed troop, Nikki Haley's husband. What happened to her husband? What happened to her husband? Where is he? He's gone. He mocked my husband's military service. And I'll say this. Donald, if you have something to say, don't say it behind my back. Get on a debate stage and say it to my face. Tom Nichols, uh, Major Michael Haley has been on a year-long deployment in Africa with the South Carolina National Guard since last June. And just to just, because she didn't say it and she probably should have, where's Melania? 
Well, you want to talk about somebody's spouse not being there. When, when's the last time we saw Melania? I think at her mom's funeral, she didn't even let him get in the car with her. And his pack is paying six figures, $368,000 for a fashion consultant for a lady that doesn't go on the campaign trail with her husband and doesn't go with him to court. That was me being as petty as Nikki Haley should have been. But I would love for you to talk about the fact that Donald Trump has supporters in the United States military who don't seem to mind that he doesn't give a damn about our troops. And not for the first time, um, you know, his uh, his attack on uh, Nikki Haley's husband, Major Haley. Um, I mean, this is a guy who thought that people in American uh, that American dead in war cemeteries were losers and suckers. Um, a, a comment that initially he tried to, de- to deny. I mean, he just looks down on people in uniform. There's no doubt about it. And I, I want to make two quick points. First of all, if, if Joe Biden, going back to your point about coverage, if Joe Biden had made that kind of reference about um, a competitor's spouse in that weird sing-songy little boy, you know, kind of thing that <clears throat> Donald Trump does, that the the, the coverage tomorrow would be that, you know, Joe Biden's lost it. He has to be removed. You know, the, we have to invoke the 25th Amendment. Donald Trump doesn't. Everybody says, well, you know, that's Trump just the way Trump. he talks. That's just how, mm-hmm. how he is. The other is that I think Americans also don't understand that even short of World War Three, if if the Russians t- take over Ukraine and become once again as dominant um, at as the Soviet Union in in Europe, Americans don't realize that their standard of living depends on the rules of the international system not being drawn up in places like Moscow and Beijing and Tehran and other places that long before you get to a war, their their daily life, their standard of living, the things they take for granted would be affected. And so when they simply shrug their shoulders, when people simply say, well, so what? Donald Trump does these things. There are bad people who wish us ill in foreign capitals who are cheering Donald Trump on. And I'm going to just punctuate that with one final comment for our audience. No less than Tucker Carlson told Jonathan Carl, the author, he said this in his book, Tired of Winning. The former Fox News host said that Donald Trump's opposition to Ukraine assistance is more radical than he states publicly. I hate the war in Ukraine more than anything Carlson told Carl. And Trump is like the only person who agrees with me on that. He's far more radical than even he's saying in front of his audiences. Uh, Former Ambassador William Taylor, Tom Nichols, thank you both very much. Scaring is caring, as we say on this show. Up next on The Readout, Trump's claim of absolute immunity, because then there's this too. It hasn't been getting any traction in the lower courts, thank God. So a couple of hours ago, he asked his hand-picked justices on the Leonard Leo Supreme Court to give him a hand. Great. The Readout continues after this. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. 
It is already shaping up to be a busy legal week for Donald Trump. This morning, he was in a Florida courthouse for a closed hearing in his classified documents case. It is a first for Trump in the case and the first time that he appeared before Judge Aileen Cannon, whom he appointed during his administration. His legal team was making their case before the judge about why they should receive more access to those very classified documents that Trump took when he left the White House. And late today, Trump filed his request to the Supreme Court to hit pause on the D.C. Circuit Court's unanimous ruling last week, rejecting his claim to absolute immunity from criminal prosecution. This is Trump's last-ditch effort to delay the federal election interference case, and his 10-page plea to the highest court in the land is a rehash of all of his greatest hits that have already been denied in the lower courts. That includes the claims that this would open up all future presidents to potential prosecution, which would be true if future presidents committed the same crimes Trump is accused of committing following his 2020 presidential election loss, or if everything he was indicted for was done in his official capacity as president, which would be wild, right? Since I I still can't understand how pressuring the Georgia secretary of state to find him 11,780 votes was an official presidential act. And Trump again made the claim that not only would the D.C. Circuit Court's ruling, which would allow the federal trial to resume, cause him irreparable harm, but it also, quote, threatens immediate irreparable injury to the First Amendment interests of tens of millions of American voters who are entitled to hear President Trump's campaign message as they decide to cast their ballots in November. Note that in the filing, they continue to refer to citizen Trump as president. Join me now is former U.S. Attorney Joyce Vance, MSNBC legal analyst and professor at the University of Alabama School of Law. It is always good to see you. I am holding in my hot little hands this filing. Um, What are the chances, in your view, that the Supreme Court takes this at all versus just allowing the, 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 the circuit court ruling to stand on presidential immunity? Right. I mean, the appeal of letting the circuit court ruling stand is that the case could go back to trial preparation almost immediately. But, Joy, this is a significant issue of first impression, meaning that the courts have never decided before whether a former president has full on absolute presidential immunity for criminal acts. I think it will be very difficult for the court to pass on the temptation of hearing the issue itself and deciding it. Yeah, I was listening to uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder on with Ari earlier, and they were having that conversation, right? It would be, you know, they could really put the, the, the nail in this coffin if they actually take the case in chief and they could actually decide it and then rule, no, presidents don't have, for instance, the right to kill using SEAL Team 6, which is what Donald Trump's lawyers are, are arguing. So, right, it'll be useful for the future, <laughs> maybe, to know that. Right. And of course, the boss is always right. Eric Holder is a constitutional law scholar and and is good on these issues. But it's an important point. Having a decision from the Supreme Court makes the decision a final one. And so let's go through this because there's that. Right. And so what Donald Trump is now also arguing is because as people understand, the three judges on this D.C. circuit heard the case. He now would like the full court to hear it. He would like to have that additional step before the Supreme Court gets it. That's just a delay tactic, right? Absolutely. It's a delay tactic. And this entire strategy Trump is using here is permeated with delay. 
I think that's a good catch on your part that Trump in this petition says, not only do I want you to stay my case while I get ready to, to ask you to hear it, while I get ready to file my certiorari petition, he also says, I want you to undo what the Court of Appeals did to me, where they said I couldn't have an additional stay of proceedings in front of the district court if I asked the full Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia to rehear it. So you can see how at every step they're just baking in more and more delay. And one hopes that the Supreme Court will see it for what it is, call it out for what it is and handle the case expeditiously. Uh, well, let's go now to the documents case, because it does seem to be that Aileen Cannon has been the best friend Donald Trump ever had in terms of a judge. Uh, the idea that he, she would allow any witness information to be released, putting those people at threat, which is what Jack Smith is in their argument, please don't let. And also that, she, that Donald Trump could go in and ask for further access to the documents he stole. That's like a bank robber saying, let me hold the money for a little bit because I just need to make my case. That, to me, that is in, b- bananas that that's even something he could ask for. Yeah, you know, it's really troubling. These issues are surfacing on parallel tracks. First, this, there's this request Trump has made for additional discovery, and he wants to be able to have this publicly. Names not just of witnesses, Joy, but of potential witnesses, so people who may never testify. And he wants that despite the fact that Jack Smith has come forward now with evidence about threats to at least one of those potential witnesses. So that's certainly troubling. And then the judge is in the process of holding these Classified Information Procedures Act hearings designed to uh, rule on how uh, classified material will be handled in this case. And here's maybe one inkling of hope when it comes to Eileen Cannon. Under the statute, the SEPA, if the government doesn't believe the judge gets those answers right, then the government is entitled to take an immediate interlocutory appeal to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And in the past, they have seemed to have had Judge Cannon's number. And so basically what you're saying in layman's terms is they can say, wait a minute, we need the 11th Circuit to look at her conduct, right? And, and go back and review her decisions. That's right, because SEPA is meant to meaningfully protect classified information from revelation in the public, which could damage the national security. And so instead of running that risk, the statute says, if the government thinks the judge has gotten it wrong, We'll pause everything. The government can take an appeal to the 11th Circuit in the first instance. It could conceivably go all the way to the Supreme Court because we want to be so certain, oh, the irony in this case, that we are protecting our national security by keeping classified documents from unnecessary disclosure. Joyce Vance, I always feel like I'm auditing your law class uh, whenever you're on it, and I appreciate it so much. You're helping us all to be smarter about the law, which we're going to need uh, when it comes to Donald Trump. Thank you so much, Joyce. Always appreciate you. And coming up, Israeli forces rescued two hostages from Hamas captivity with airstrikes carried out to cover the raid, killing more than 60 Palestinians, including women and children. We'll be right back. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Jen Psaki 
Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. Two Israeli hostages are free and reunited with their families after they were rescued early Monday. Israeli forces say they rescued the two hostages, Fernando Marman and Luis Har, who were being held by Hamas in the city of Rafah. The human cost, however, was massive. Local officials said the airstrikes used in the raid killed more than 60 Palestinians, including women and children. Rafah is a crowded city sheltering more than one million displaced people. According to NBC News reporting, President Biden has been venting his frustration in recent private conversations over his inability to persuade Israel to change its military tactics in the Gaza Strip, even calling Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu an a-hole, according to people directly familiar with his comments. But as Biden disparages Netanyahu in private, not much has significantly changed in terms of U.S. policy toward Israel and Gaza, even as the death count soars. More than 28,000 people have been killed in Gaza since the war began, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. Thousands more are missing and presumed dead. Joining me now is Rilla Jabril, a Palestinian policy expert and visiting professor at the University of Miami. Rilla, my friend, it is great to see you. Let's talk about this. There is a dichotomy now between what President Biden is saying privately and publicly. And also the policy hasn't changed much. Well, if you say things privately and then your policies are unwilling, you're unwilling to change your policy, it means nothing. I mean, look at the frustration of uh, the European chief diplomat, Borrell, who's a very moderate guy who today came. If you really believe, and this was pointed out to President Biden, if you believe that they are killing too many people, they're going over the top, then ultimately you have to cut military aid. You have to stop military aid. I mean, for Borrell to say that, it indicates that the Europeans are shifting. Uh, already you have the Netherlands, Spain, Belgium. They already are not sending weapons. You're already seeing a shift in Europe where they're saying we distance them ourselves from these kind of policies. They're unwilling to stand with Bibi Netanyahu. What they consider is zero-sum genocidal policies. And it's jeopardizing national security for them, for Europeans, for the Israelis themselves, and for the Americans. And, you know, the, the, the ostensive reason for this is to return the, I think, about 130 hostages remaining. But the ratio, you know, two hostages freed for 60 Palestinians, but it's much more than that because of the missing and dead. Over the weekend, the story of a little girl named Hind, a, yes. a beautiful little six-year-old girl, who the 911 call to the Red Crescent went around the world. These of the kinds of stories we're seeing. She, her body was found. She was found dead uh, in the vehicle in which she was fleeing, trying to get to safety. This is the, These are the stories that people are seeing. This is what's impacting the, the, 12, the attitude toward the war. 12,000 children in the course of four months been killed. We know that children are dying now as we speak of starvation. The use of starvation as a weapon of war is illegal. The story of Hind is the story of many people, but we heard Hind begging for mercy, begging for help on a phone call. And Joy, you talk about the hostages. Ultimately, they freed two hostages, but 30 were killed by Israeli bombardment. The only time we had any hostage release is by negotiation. Yeah. There's a, no military solution to this conflict. There's only a diplomatic one. And what Netanyahu is doing, he's bragging that he is fighting with Biden because 
he benefit from that politically. But he is expanding the war to the West Bank while all eyes on Gaza, on Rafa, on the onslaught, on the slaughter of Rafa. What's happening in the West Bank tonight? They burned down a village, Hawara, an entire village, the village that a finance minister was calling to wipe it out. We see in Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem, in my neighborhood, under my neighborhood, hundreds chanting of extremist Jewish uh, settlers saying, kill all the Arabs. Sadly, if the United States doesn't intervene to stop this mass killing of Palestinians, what the world consider as Bibi Netanyahu's policy of extermination of Palestinians, President Biden has a responsibility to protect. And he's not only doing anything, he actually seems to be, you know, privately venting, but unwilling and unable to do anything. I mean, today he had a conversation in the White House with some, some people from the regions. And the only thing he was focused on, the people from the region is let's let's wait and see what happened after and maybe we can have desalination projects for Gaza. But by the time the war ends, I think there will be a thinning of the population as Israel predicted and people will be, there will be no Gaza. The living conditions don't exist there anymore. And Rafa is the, la- the last station, the last place. And if you are willing to not protect the civilians, which, you know, after Rwanda, the United States developed this doctrine. Yeah. Our responsibility to protect the United States is compelled to protect civilians. And if he's unwilling to do that, I fear this will open the door, not only for Netanyahu to erase Palestinians, for Trump to win here and for Putin to take not only Ukraine and take Europe as well. And that is that's the wider picture. Yes. Right. And, and the, the other thing that you're now seeing is an emboldening. And, I, and the yes. ICJ slowed, I think, folks down for a moment. But now I'm going to be some VO of it. People are literally blockading the aid from getting into Gaza yes. and amassing themselves near the near the border with Egypt and saying we're not letting any food get in. Settlers not only blockading the aid, settlers are are now chanting in every city, including inside Israel, kill all the Palestinians, kill the Arabs, exterminate them. I mean, I never seen in, you know, in my lifetime uh, soldiers uploading their own pictures, yeah. committing war crimes. We're living in a, in a situation where not only Palestinians are yeah. Screaming the atrocity yeah. they are being subjected. We're seeing actually Israeli soldiers Posting bragging about that. On social this, media. This yeah. comes from one thing. Yeah. Lack of accountability, Indeed. a sense of impunity, but above all, unconditional support and lack from of scrutiny the from in the, the media States. of these policies. Yeah. And that's why they feel emboldened. Uh, Rula Jabril, thank you. Thank uh, you. An expert in the region, and I always value your voice. Thank you so much. And still ahead, RFK Jr. ends up having to apologize to his own family for an ad playing during the Super Bowl as conservatives blow a gasket over the very idea of a black national anthem. More next. It's there! Hartman! Jackpot! Kansas City! That was the moment the Kansas City Chiefs defeated the San Francisco 49ers last night, making them Super Bowl champions for the second straight year and the third time in the last five years. It was a nail-biter of an ending with the Chiefs quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, connecting with receiver Nicole Hardman for the winning touchdown in overtime, making Mahomes a three-time Super Bowl MVP. But beyond the game itself, it was a very eventful night for easily triggered conservatives. Pop superstar Taylor Swift was in attendance, cheering on her boyfriend, Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey.
which, of course, had the MAGA fanatics losing their minds and accusing Democrats of rigging the game, claiming it's all part of the supposed psyop that the pop star is a government agent working to get Joe Biden reelected. The president himself even trolled that conspiracy, posting a dark Brandon meme on X Twitter and writing just like we drew it up, a troll that drew equal amounts of Biden fan euphoria and frankly, confusion and criticism given the warfare currently raging in the Middle East. But PSYOP or not, it appears that Swift's potential political power has Donald Trump shaking in his boots. Just hours before kickoff, he decided to take credit for her success, posting on his wannabe Twitter, I signed and was responsible for the Music Modernization Act for Taylor Swift. Joe Biden didn't do anything for Taylor and never will. There's no way she could endorse Crooked Joe Biden and be disloyal to the man who made her so much money. Besides that, I like her boyfriend, Travis, even though he may be a liberal and probably can't stand me. In the words of Miss Swift, Donald, you need to calm down. But the Swifties weren't the only music fans who had a great night. There was Usher's epic halftime show featuring several R&B and hip hop icons like Alicia Keys, Her, Ludacris, Lil Jon, and Will I Am, plus Jermaine Dupree. And on top of all of that, Beyonce herself, who was also in attendance, not only surprise dropped two new songs, but also announced a new country album called Act Two that will be released in March. But of course, it would not be the Super Bowl without the commercials. Some were funny, some were heartfelt, and others just downright weird, including a $7 million ad that has Robert Kennedy Jr. apologizing to his own family. We'll bring you that and much more next. want a man for president who's seasoned through and through a man who's old enough to know and young enough to do well it's up to you it's up to you it's strictly up to you american value 2024 is responsible for the content of this advertisement okay that was a seven million dollar super bowl ad in support of Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s independent run for president. It was produced by a super PAC called American Values 24. The ad plagiarizes an iconic 1960 campaign ad for Kennedy's uncle, our 35th president, John F. Kennedy, but using photos of RFK Jr. Not surprisingly, Kennedy's name spiked in Google searches after the ad. His family members were not happy about it, though. With his cousin, Bobby Shriver, writing on the Hell app, formerly known as Twitter, my cousin's Super Bowl ad used our uncle's faces and my mother's referring to Eunice Kennedy Shriver. She would be appalled by his deadly health care views. Another cousin, Mark Shriver, posted an agreement. RFK Jr. replied, Bobby, I'm so sorry if that advertisement caused you pain, noting that the ad was created by a super PAC without his knowledge. I send you and your family my sincerest apologies. And yet, the ad is Kennedy's pinned post on X Twitter. Joining me now is John Fugelsang, host of Tell Me Everything on Sirius XM and the John Fugelsang podcast, and my friend who I have not seen in way too long. John, it is good to see you. Your thoughts on that ad and the apology, but not unpinning it? 
Yeah, you know, um, plagiarism is one word. I call it grave robbing, Joy. Uh, this is already the grassy knoll of presidential <laughs> campaign. And I don't really view it as an ad for RFK. I, re- I view it as an ad for Donald Trump in seven swing states. That's what this is about. I mean, you're exactly right on everything you say. He's not going to win the Democratic. No- He's not going to win the presidency. He's not going to win the Kennedy family Hyannisport primary. Robert Kennedy, who is a man I've admired and worked with at times throughout my life, he's running interference for Donald Trump now. And it's shocking to everybody. But this was an ad that was paid for by Trump supporters who want to see Donald Trump be president. We can't take our eyes off that. And the very fact that he's still keeping it pinned on his account shows he's as insincere to his family members as he is to the American voter. Is it just he he is an anti-vaxxer? We know that's his thing. But I guess if he consolidates the anti-vax vote, who does that hurt more, Trump or Biden? It's all to hurt Biden. That's why he's running. That's what the campaign is there for. And he's not running a particularly progressive campaign. He's running to be popular among Joe Rogan dude bros, mostly. It's really not recognizable to the man I've known for years as an amazing environmental justice lawyer. You're right. And and I think for people who are dissatisfied with Biden on Gaza, just know that he is like way to the right of Biden on Gaza. Like he's so far to the right of him. He's basically Bibi Netanyahu. (laughs) I mean, like he's way to the right. Okay, let's talk about the other odd ad, because this is the other ad that was people like, wait a minute, is Jesus on Feet Finder? Let let me play a little bit of it. Um, (laughs) He gets us. That's the ad. Here it is. You were there. There was a, a Jesus ad last Super Bowl, but that time it was by sort of an anti-LGBTQ group. This is different funders, so it's not, it's the same kind of thing, but different. What did you make of that? Look, first off, it's great that Jesus raised my favorite in excess song from the dead. So thank you for that. That was lovely. Um, I'm of a very mixed mind on it, Joy. I thought it was a beautiful ad, to be honest with you. The whole message of it is an attack on Christian nationalism yeah. or Christian fascism or, or fundamentalism, whatever you want to call it. It doesn't present this fictional American warrior, Caucasian Jesus. It shows that Jesus is a life of compassion and love and service and humility. I mean, I'm watching the ad and I was thinking this is designed to make MAGA heads explode. <laughs> then there's scary concerns, though, which is, well, OK, but if you care this much and you get what Jesus was about, couldn't that 12 million have been used to Take care of the poor. Jesus did tell off his own followers spending money on ointment instead of helping them. And it's the funders you bring up, Joy, because when I learned who the funders were, it's a lot of these groups that are deeply anti-gay, anti-LGBT. And to me, homophobia is the opposite of Jesus's teachings. Homophobia is incompatible with the Gospels. Yeah. Last question. Megyn Kelly lost her mind (laughs) about the Black National Anthem, which I will note was made the Black National Anthem 12 years before the U.S., you know, the the song that's the American National Anthem, which was made the National Anthem in the 1930s, 1931. Your thoughts about the freak out over the Black National Anthem, which was written in 1900, by the way. (laughs) 
Yeah, you know, Megyn Kelly says Jesus was white and blackface is all right. But I don't take it all that seriously. I mean, this is someone who said pepper spray was a food and pizza was a vegetable and Fox News was news. It, it does come back to the fact that Megyn is not a fan of anything that doesn't cater to her whiteness. I will give a hundred bucks to anyone who can show me a tape of Megyn Kelly ever calling a white lawbreaker, a thug, or an illegal. I don't want to be too hard on her. I thought she was great as Queen Elsa in Frozen. But at the end of the day, the worst part about Megyn Kelly is if she were to come out and say that that there was a great game and Usher did a good job and I like the halftime show, her base would kill her. They, they would, would call her woke. They would call her critical race theory. She'd so she's what? Hate is what she has to sell. It's all she's got. It's sad. She couldn't just enjoy the ATL goodness of the halftime show. And Andre Day, she did a brilliant job. And by the way, the black, the, the, the NFL is 70 some odd percent black players. I That's think right. they enjoyed the way, Andre Day. Yeah. Go ahead. And the national anthem, the third verse of the national anthem is all about getting revenge on Correct. slaves who are fighting with the British for their freedom. It I is. don't fault you has a problem with it. And you can sing all three stanzas of the Black National Anthem and feel good about yourself. John Fugel Amen. saying, thank you very much. I appreciate you. And before we go, I want to thank all of you readers in Philly and in St. Louis for coming out to see me on my book tour this past week. I have loved meeting you all. And for all of those of you in California, I will be heading out there later this week. I'll be in Pomona College in Claremont on Thursday at 7 p.m. and then in Menlo Park at Kepler on Friday at 7 p.m. Please be sure to go to Medgar and Murley. No, I'm sorry, to msnbc.com slash Medgar and Murley for tickets. And I hope to see you there. And that is tonight's readout. And thank you all to the Deltas who've been supporting me so much and coming to everything. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today.